Good day, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Blowing Cartridges, a gaming podcast where we dive into the issues surrounding gaming culture and the games themselves. I'm Brendan Tam, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Zach Clark. So, Zach, we're getting out of winter, we're going into spring, and I think spring always has some good memories, not not so as much as summer, but still some pretty good spring memories, and I think when I think back on memories throughout my life, my childhood, high school, even university now, I sound like an old man, which in reality I'm not, I'm in my <laughs> mid-twenties, but I, I like to sometimes think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm getting old, but regardless, I, I think back to some of my earliest memories, and many of them include video games, and I think throughout the lifespan of this podcast, we've always very much leaned on our experiences and the experiences of our guests, but I think it's always worthwhile to take a step back and think about why those memories hold so much value and why they remain a constant in our lives and often are a driver in a lot of our decisions in terms of what we enjoy, what we want to use our spare time to do and a whole manner of different things. So I guess this is a very open-ended question to begin with, but what's your thoughts on all these dynamics? Where do you want to start? What what do you want to discuss? Because I think it's an interesting thing for us to unpick things. It always does come up in our discussions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we always, uh, I think even from the earliest episodes of Blowing Cartridges about, you know, a year or so ago, sort of talked about our gaming history and that kind of thing, right? And uh, to give people a bit of a flavor of who we are and what we're into. And it it was interesting then to look back at, you know, our, our lives and what we've done and what we've played. But it's really interesting to think about those memories and, and I guess to put a word on it, that nostalgia you feel for games you experienced uh, days gone by uh, that influence not only, I guess, what you play today and uh, what you enjoy, but I guess, you know, the effects nostalgia have on us as as consumers and as um, reviewers, if, we're, you know, if you're a reviewer or a person just sharing an opinion about a game, because it's pretty strong, right? Like, I mean, I think we've definitely seen a massive, you know, capitalization of, people's childhood uh loves uh, in the last maybe 10 15 years with everyone under the sun reviving 90s and 80s sort of brands on t-shirts or getting revival series and things like netflix like cartoons and that kind of stuff coming back uh and the same is definitely definitely true of games there's just something about you know what you played as a kid or what you experienced as a kid mm. that we're always sort of seemingly searching for uh, and again, particularly in our generation and, and, you know, the generations just above and maybe just below us compared to say, you know, if I look at my parents, they're not quite as strongly attached to the stuff from their childhood in the same way I find um, as we are. And it's massive and it, it has a massive impact on the video game industry, right? Like we've talked about, I can't remember which episode it was, but I definitely recall talking about the drive for sequels and you know continuations of existing IP versus you know new IP when it comes to the the big companies right obviously if you're a, if you're a brand new indie you don't have a history you can necessarily pull upon but um there's a reason that like these big companies you know Nintendo to an extent Microsoft through their acquisitions of old IP Sega Capcom you know, Square Enix, uh, pretty much all of them uh, draw upon their old brands time and time again and capitalize on that 
But I think we just want to talk about, again, yeah, why? Why do these old brands carry so much weight in our in our minds and our uh, and a you know factor into our decision making because it's a really interesting thing, right? Like games come out in from all sorts of developers uh, across the country, uh, across the sorry, not the country, across the world, and some of them are really great and you know fantastic new ideas from indies or even sometimes a big company, but they don't always get the same attention as you know the next Mario, the next God of War, the next Halo. You know, and it's really interesting because even though one could probably assess these two products side by side and say one is technically better than the other, there's just something about seeing a familiar character or a familiar, you know, theme that really pulls us to playing that game. I know, for example, <laughs> I'll certainly um, play anything, or, you know, give anything with a Pokemon in it a shot, even if the mm. game isn't that great, <laughs> which is. I think really true when we think about the recent release of Pokemon Unite, which I, I think is a good game, even though it has its issues of pay to win. But my friend, pay to win, yeah, yep. gotta bring in those dollars, Zach. Yep, and that, that's a big factor. But I mean, my friend pointed out if this wasn't a Pokemon game, it would just be another, you know, Chinese developed mobile, of which there are many on mobile and other platforms, which I have never had any interest in, <laughs> and, that, and that's fair. Like it is a hundred percent that affiliation i have with that brand and my love for that brand that has pulled me in to give that any sort of time i don't know have you have you either recently or just in you know your own memory been drawn into a particular game or, or that you probably wouldn't have if it wasn't branded or you know filled with that kind of um nostalgia that you're just sort of craving oh definitely and i think it's it's capitalism at work baby gotta gotta bring in all those benjamins and build brands that <laughs> larger than life but for me i think the earliest memory i have of this phenomenon i think it happened a few times but one that always sticks in my mind was getting super paper mario on the nintendo wii because yes i guess it's more of a sub it's sort of a a sub series of uh what you were discussing here but it was more it wasn't only just the brand recognition of mario which of course generally leads one to buy all manner of different things both games and licensed products and the like but when it came to super paper mario it was a case of i really liked paper mario thousand year door on the gamecube and i was expecting more of the same it had a lot of nostalgia for the game just a lot of good memories playing it with my sister almost finishing it but not and we played it ad nauseum for a couple of years really on and off and when super paper mario came out i thought oh it's a paper mario game i'm going to really enjoy it and i got it, put it in the way, played it, and then realised that it wasn't really what I conceived as a Paper Mario game. Yes, in hindsight, it has a lot of the hallmarks. It has the visual design. It has the writing from Intelligent Systems. It's quite witty and interesting in in those early games of the series. But from a gameplay perspective, it played nothing alike. And for me, that was probably one of the first moments when I bought something, was expecting to get a particular thing based on its track record and was unsatisfied because it wasn't what I expected, even though by all reports it is a good game. I've never gone back and played it in full. I've always planned to do, and one day I will, once I get through the mountain of my historic and uh, <laughs> iconic at this point backlog. But from that moment, I realised what the power of nostalgia can exert, that it, it did convince me to buy that game, convince me to be hyped about that game, like, 
the only reason I was interested in that game really was, yes, it was a Mario game, but more importantly, it was a Paper Mario game. It was a combination of that brand recognition, a combination of the memories I had with that brand, and just combined with this expectation underlying it all that it will give me a particular experience because of what it's delivered in the past and also I'll enjoy it because I enjoy the previous one. And I think a big part of this nostalgia we're talking about is it builds a, in many ways, there's an element of it that builds an expectation that you're going to get something. And I'm sure we'll get into the topic later in the episode, but it can also have the opposite effect of going back to something you once liked and you don't like it anymore. So it's definitely a very powerful dynamic that can can lead you into good experiences and can lead you into disappointed experiences. Yeah, 100% agree. And it, it is obviously a tool that we just touched on is recognized by people to pull us in to try things yep. that we wouldn't otherwise. But I also want to quickly talk before we move on to maybe the negative that you just touched on. Uh, another positive way nostalgia can be used because I, I think from an artistic or a creative perspective, it can be used, you know, not just for <laughs> commercial gain, but in a way to actually evoke a specific, you know, feeling uh, in a player who has you know, come on a journey or has experienced past titles in a series. I know for me, probably the, the one that stuck out the most as uh, the first time I felt this was with um, Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, because obviously, well, not obviously, but I grew up 64, so first Zelda game was Ocarina of Time. Uh, and so the scene... You were a mature, grim, dark gamer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was all about Wind Waker, and that was... I love the colourful art style, but besides the point... Uh, without sorry to put <laughs> about some spoilers for anyone that has not played that game that's on what 20 almost 20 years old if not 20 years old at this stage there's a there's a moment when you go under this sort of uh, under the ocean uh that's flooded under high the wall. sea yeah. under the sea <laughs> you meet sebastian and you start singing with him and you, yeah, anyway you go under the ocean and you go back to hyrule and and Clo- uh, not clock town uh, Castle Town, and while it's not one for one, you know, the same as Ocarina of Time, it did feel like, oh, I'm going back to this place where I was the other Link, and I, you know, I mm-hmm. remember when this was with people bustling around town, and now it's just like this barren, you know, uh, empty area, and that, you know, definitely hit this nostalgic note uh, as a player, which I'm sure people who never played Ocarina of Time or an earlier Zelda game didn't feel that that note, but it was, I think, a very intentional moment from the developers to try and invoke that sense of like emotion of like oh yes like <laughs> that this is this is where i you know grew up playing this game and now it's, it's, i'm here in the future and it's it's changed but it's still the same place um i think that was a very clever artistic use and mm. i'm sure there are other examples i don't know if you have any off the top top of your head that you recall the one that instantly comes to mind because it actually relates to a movie I watched a couple of months ago. So I guess it's more about games invoking pop culture than nostalgia. But I guess in many ways it's similar to it's invoking nostalgia, particular pop culture, particular popular movies or books or TV shows and the like. And that would be Grand Theft Auto Vice City, which is very much ingrained in the film Scarface. And I'm one of the many that, I've never watched Scarface growing up, of course. Well, it's a very ultraviolet movie of the, what, 70s or, yeah, 70s and or 80s, actually. Anyway, whenever it was, which decade it was released, it was one of those two. But before anyway, you were born. <laughs> I, before I was born, well, and honestly, I probably shouldn't have been playing Fire City when I was, what, 8, 9, 10. But anyway, irregardless, it was always one of my favourite games. And 
watching that movie a couple of months ago, I realised just how many cues it takes from Scarface. Like, the mansion in Fire City is pretty much a one-to-one recreation of the one in Scarface. There's just a lot of the aesthetics, a lot of the character stylings and the like. It's very much invoking that film. And I think that was part of the appeal of the game to many people, that even those people that aren't, that at the time weren't familiar with the source material, well, it's, it's very much evoking a particular spirit. And it did that so well that it created it for the people that were in the know, they like it because of those cues. And for the people that weren't familiar with what was happening, like you said, if someone hadn't played Ocarina of Time, played Wind Waker and went to that castle under the sea, they wouldn't necessarily recognize it as, oh, this is exactly like the castle in Ocarina of Time. I can see the altar where the, uh, where the sacred stone, not sacred stones. What are they called? It's like the three uh, stones, yeah, the elemental uh, stone things. It might be, it might be sacred stones or something similar. I can't actually remember, but yeah, I know what you mean. Anyway, where you, the three stones that go in the altar, the the pillar thing where the master sword goes in, like it's all there in under the sea. So it's you might not recognize all those things, but it's still like, oh, this is a castle underwater. Like this is quite a cool finale. This is a cool spectacle. Like it it uses both nostalgia it's using both people's recognition of what's going on as well as even in its own right it's a cool moment even in its own right it's effectively establishing a particular spirit a particular aesthetic or a particular just feeling and i think that's what separates the games that harness nostalgia in a good way and the ones that just do it in a cheap or cash grabby way that it's clearly not much thought went into it not much effort went into it they were just like oh yeah conan the barbarian is popular or like arnold schwarzenegger is popular let's have like a shirtless muscular barbarian guy in this game and people will like it because that's what's popular with all the teens right now like successfully using nostalgia is a lot more i think it takes a lot more skill and a lot more art than some would expect and i think sometimes it does get wrongly criticized for being an easy effort being lazy and the like and i think when it's done well it's the opposite of that yeah it can be a very powerful tool but a very uh you know like most things can can be a double-edged sword if you don't utilize it properly because uh when you are dealing with something that is held in such high regard in someone's mind to not execute on it well can absolutely backlash i mean i think about Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts uh, as a good example where, even though I think that's a really, <laughs> really good game, it's and it does try to evoke some sense of nostalgia from the player who played the previous games, references uh, as even a world which is kind of like a museum to the whole previous sets of games. Because it is such a drastic different experience to what fans wanted of a, a third Banjo-Kazooie game, it is is one of those ones that's kind of reviled uh, when you talk to a lot of people. It gets a very negative uh, reaction. Uh, and obviously, I don't know for sure how well it sold, but I'm pretty sure it did not sell uh, you know, the numbers one would have wanted uh, or potentially close to you know the previous entries in the series. And, and again, it, it's that was probably an example where somebody should have said, actually, we shouldn't make this a Banjo-Kazooie game. We should make it, you know... Um, I'm trying to think of like a robot name, but I was going to say Clank, which is probably <laughs> a bad choice. Um, Astrobot's party. Yeah, Astrobot and Clank's uh, car making adventure, even though there's a Sony franchises. But in any event, the, the point is uh, that's a good example where 
trying to shoo, sort of shoehorn uh, something in for nostalgia's sake to try and pull in that crowd can be detrimental uh, to mm-hmm. the perception of your game. And I'm sure there are plenty, plenty of others uh, out there where it was a poor choice to go for the nostalgic route rather than explore a new IP. Oh, it's a double-edged sword. You're exactly right, because what happens is not only do you have to craft a compelling experience, you're going to have to, as a developer, craft an experience that, in the eyes of fans, does the previous one justice or is even better than the previous one. And I think that's the other part of the expectation that comes with nostalgia that can be so detrimental to a game when, as a developer or as a publisher, you decide to evoke a hallowed series, you try to evoke sort of, oh, this is a spiritual sequel to X game because we have, like, the creative director from 20 years ago back on on the team. It can be very hard to live up to the hype. It can be very hard to live up to all those expectations. Well, we're kind of seeing it at the moment with Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2, which is a game that is seemingly in development hell at the moment. It might emerge in the coming years and might not, but that was one that was a cult game not really a popular game by many respects, but it was a cult game, has a lot of people are very nostalgic about it, has a lot of fans, and there was just a lot of expectation around the reveal. There was a lot of expectation about the developers that were involved, even though the particular development team had never released a, a game in their history, I think, for memory. I might be wrong on that point, but I don't think they had a track record. Or if they did have a track record, it was on sort of smaller games. It wasn't on a big RPG, which is what they were targeting so if you pull it off well well you can have a successful franchise for access did it with um two under 2k with the xcom series they successfully brought that back in this in many ways probably arguably as big if not bigger than it was in the 90s so you can do it well but it's a very difficult endeavor to attempt yeah and i think one thing that's really interesting when you look at uh say those xcom games that you mentioned or the um, Vampire Masquerade game, in both cases, there's this massive gap between, like, entries, right? Like, we're not talking yeah. something that gets a regular update every two, three, four, even five years. Mm. Well, yeah. They, they have to take a big leap, and that's always a real challenge because you sort of got options, right? Do you do the quote-unquote faithful, you know, next entry that isn't up to necessarily the modern standards but is you know, in line with what one would expect of the next entry in the series? Or do you try and bring it up to speed with modern gameplay mechanics and expectations? And does but does that upset the people who are chasing, you know, that, that the flying dragon of what they had as a kid, I suppose, um, if it's too different? And it, it's always a fine line. And I think, it, you know, it's different when, again, it's something like, uh, Mario, which gets a new game so regularly that it doesn't ever feel like it's chasing something from the past necessarily, even though some games obviously do harken back to older ones uh, more than others. But yeah, these ones where there's massive gaps is um, really tricky. Like I remember at the first PAX Oz 2013, which is the first PAX, they had the uh, a panel on Killer Instinct because that was uh, in development to come back and uh, one of the, I got a chance to you know put my hand up and ask a question, and it was you know what is the most challenging thing about you know well, what's different from reviving such a you know effectively dead franchise versus a new one or or something that's sort of more recent, um, and yeah they were saying it's like 
how do we make this feel like Killer Instinct, but also how do we make it feel like a 20 or whatever it was, 16 game, I suppose. 2014. 14, yeah. (laughs) I forget. Well, yeah, 2014, I guess, if it was 2013 when the interview was. And they said it's it's a real hard line because fighting games have somehow they've evolved, but at the same time, you know, people still love those old school mechanics from the old games, and it, it's really tough to hit that you know that balance. And I think in that case, they luckily did. Yeah, and I think it's similar to a lot of challenges in indie game developers face mm. because I think the because if you think about the successful ones that do harness the power of sort of eight bit or sixteen bit graphics, it's the the ones that come to mind are games like Hollow Knight, games like, probably not as much Hollow Knight, but more games like Shovel Knight was what I meant to say. Because Shovel Knight's a game that uses that 8-bit aesthetic. A lot of people think like, oh, this is like what NES games used to be like. The fact is that there'd be no 8-bit NES game that's sort of on the same level from a technology perspective as Shovel Knight was. Mm. But it's able to harness the aesthetic of an 8-bit game. It's able to harness that nostalgia that someone can play it and they can think oh this reminds me of when I played the NES when I was five years old at my grandmother's house and I played like Contra and Castlevania and Mega Man and all those classic games that it evokes the feeling whilst not using the exact same mechanics not using the same anachronisms as those games had because of technological limitations or just what design was at that point in time that it's able to harness some modern sensibilities whilst harkening back to the past. And that's what those games do successfully. That's what developers like Dot Umi can pull off with the Wonder Boy games that a lot of developers struggle to do. And I think ultimately that's what separates a lot of the really successful indie game developers to the not so successful ones that all go for that aesthetic because it did feel like in the early 2010s that all indie games were trying to go for that 8-bit aesthetic. Maybe it was mm. from a cost perspective, from a development tool point of view that it was easy to do, but or maybe it was because it was successful ones that pulled it off that they all went for that market. But if you analyse a lot of those games, you can see the ones that succeed and the ones that, that fail. And I think those are the factors that very much determine that, that they harness that nostalgia, they harness feelings of previous games, but... They aren't stuck in the past. They aren't like, oh, this is just like a what a bad license game would have been like in the NES. It's no, this is what a Castlevania was like. This was what like a tentpole Konami Capcom or Nintendo game was. Yeah, that's that's very true, and I think that's sort of leans to this trend in certain genres being prominent. And you've said uh, Castlevania and and Hollow Knight, uh, so I'm gonna gonna you know talk about Metroidvanias, of course, and. That's a really interesting genre to look at because it's. I feel like there's one every other day <laughs> coming out from somebody. Um, <laughs> oh, I think more than that. Yeah, it's 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 a lot, and it's you know, and quite a lot do get pretty massive critical acclaim. Like, I think at least one a year, if not multiple, get to those you know eighty to ninety review scores, or at least a lot of praise online uh, as like this is the next big thing. I mean. You know, Axiom Verge, you know, Dead Cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's, you know, so many um, that, uh, yeah, sure, they do sometimes unique twists, uh, like have a have a, a roguelite element added in or whatever, but they certainly dominate that indie space a lot uh, for the last five, six, I don't know, maybe longer years. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what's interesting is you don't see demand 
go away for a new Metroid or a new Castlevania. Obviously, we're getting a new Metroid and people are excited. And Castlevania, we still get people, you know, clamoring for Konami to, to do something, even though we most people don't like Konami. They're barely putting out games. They put out some, but not nearly the amount they used to back in the day. Uh, but people still want to see something with that uh, that brand. No one wants the games Konami puts out these days. I think you you have contra hardcore, don't you? Oh yeah, I regret it, but it also don't because it's so bad. It's funny, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it comes back to that nostalgia point though. Like it just you can't. It seems people can't be satiated by games that in some ways are, are mechanically probably better than. Uh, some of the Castlevania and Metroid games, you know, both both franchises have had their missteps in the last uh, few entries, at, at least one um, per franchise, I'd say, if not more in Castlevania's case. But, you know, people still want to see that brand. So another good one is, again, Konami again, but Silent Hill, right, with this whole, you know, weird abandoned thing, which I, I, I don't know what the latest ruling is, whether it's Silent Hills or not. I, I think it's not. I think that was the latest on it, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. I think there was some leaked interview or something shady sounding where they say that they have nothing to announce so far and it sounds like they're just kind of playing off the hype mm. and they, they aren't linked to Silent Hill or Kojima or anything. But I'm sure if Dash is listening to this podcast, he'll be screaming at his <laughs> it's good iPhone or whatever device he listens on and be like, no, I'm right, guys, it's Kojima. <laughs> yep. Um... It must be. Kojima, who uh, uh, apparently I saw on Twitter today, uh, always watches horror movies with a bag of chips so he can, uh, during the scary scenes, focus on the chips rather than the uh, than the game or the movie or whatever it is. So, um, But anyway, I digress. Um, you know, horror games, though, we've seen quite a lot of great ones, particularly out of the indie space in the last, again, you know, 10 years. Like Amnesia is a big one that I always go to. Um, wow, forgetting what the other one that starts with a C. It's on almost everything. Oh, no, not to see. I think it's Outcast or Outlast or something like that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is, there's good horror games, but people still want to see a Silent Hill, even though there's been so many bad Silent Hill games. You know, it's not a series that's perfect, but they had that brand because people have loved Silent Hill 2 uh, or Silent Hill 1, um, Silent Hill Shattered Memories on the Wii. They, they want to see that world return because they're just, you know, that's it doesn't matter to them uh, who makes it. They just want to see those characters, Pyramid Head, the creepy nurse brought back. You don't need a Silent Hill game to see Pyramid Head. You can just play that Super Bomberman game that came out at the launch of the Switch. You can unlock Pyramid Head in there and he puts bombs now and battles Bomberman That's head to head. arguably scarier than the you know, Pyramid in the actual game. Like Getting bloody cornered by a bomb in Bomberman is the most scary and frustrating thing in gaming i reckon he even makes those pyramid head sounds when he wins so it's, oh, you, you get everything the worst <laughs> but yeah it, it, i think you know it goes to show how i guess well crafted some video game worlds or characters or both are that they just become so appealing that we just want to see them in things you know we're not necessarily fussed but we do want to see them in in things and it, it I wonder, is it just purely an element of well-designed characters and worlds? Or is it, they're also just like a tipping point where like after five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, the stuff that you enjoyed back then, or you see them through rose-tinted glasses and 
uh, you think about it more fondly and thus that's why you crave those seeing them again because it reminds you of that that era i know do, do you have a, a thought on whether it's one or the other or both combined in some <laughs> in some way it is probably a mix but i would make the argument that it is more time than anything i think Time very much solidifies that feeling, that sort of longing you have for a particular genre, for a particular series, for a particular game style. And I think that's what you see in a lot of these situations, that it's that time gap. It's, oh, we haven't had a Suikoden game for a decade. I really want a game like Suikoden 2, even though Suikoden 3, Suikoden 4, Suikoden 5 came out after Suikoden 2 and did, was nowhere near as well received as that second game. People don't like. There will be some fans that say, "Oh, some of them are as good as two or whatever," like as hot takes. But they don't have that resonance as that the groundbreaking game had, and it's that that's the one people are nostalgic for. And I think if you look at things like the Mega Man series and look at Inafune and Mega Man, that a lot of the hype around Mighty Number no. Nine was that oh, Inafune is making a game in the Mega Man series that Capcom won't let him make. Irregardless of the fact that in that circumstance, it really hadn't been that long between Mega Man games because Mega Man, yeah, 9 and 10 came out in late 2000s, early 2010s and was generally mostly well received, but some people said, oh, it's not as good as the originals. But you only had to go about five, six years later and people were clamoring for more Mega Man. People gave Kenji Inafune a bucket load of money and he made... Mighty Number no. 9, which I think the less we say about Mighty Number no. 9, the better probably. But that's a game that probably shows that when nostalgia can go too far, that people just build up this expectation of what the game's going to be like. It has the original creator. He's free from the shackles of a, of a quote-unquote bad, oppressive publisher. He's going to like make the game he really wants to make. And instead, it's a very, very subpar, disappointing game. And I think... In that case, time wasn't as much of a factor, but I think there's still that impact of, oh, we haven't had it for a while. And well, I guess you can argue it still is time in that, yes, it had a, hasn't been as long as for, say, a game where, oh, fans have been waiting 10 years for a new game or 20 years or however long F Zero game fans have been waiting. Yes, it's only 10 years, but it feels like longer. Actually, I think it is more than, it's like 15 years at this point. Another facet of time, I'd argue, is that there's an ability for people to assess something and they can consider how probable it is that something is going to happen. And I think if you take Konami and Castlevania, which you used as an example previously, fans of that series can make the assumption that, well, given the track record of Konami at the moment, we're not going to see another Castlevania game. So Lords of Shadow 2 came out within the last decade and so did Mirrors of Fate. Yes, some fans will say they aren't true Castlevania games because they were developed by Mercury, Steam, etc., etc. But the fact is we've had Castlevania games within the last decade. But I think it, it feels longer because it's there's no legitimate expectation for fans to think, oh, come E3 2022, Konami's going to show up at Microsoft's conference and show off the new Castlevania game. Like that, There's much more likely things to happen than that moment. So... I think that's why time, time in essence, is probably the factor that builds up that nostalgia. And people are nostalgic for games that have either it's been a long time between drinks or 
there's just this fear, overwhelming sensation that it's unlikely that there's going to be a new game in a particular series or franchise. Yeah, no, I I tend to agree that 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 seems to be like a massive I don't know, element to the hype that builds behind these you know returns of of franchises, whether it's after 10, 15, 20, or just three years, I suppose. Just the unlikeliness is a big element. I want to take a second to also just now, like, let's explore why do we why do we chase nostalgia? Like, what's what's driving it? And this, this might veer away from just being about games. People chase nostalgia in all aspects of their life. And just throw a few ideas out, and, uh, you know, keeping in mind neither Brendan nor I are psychology experts don't have a PhD in it, and I'm sure there's some very well-researched paper out oh, there. <laughs> I did a subject on political psychology in my undergraduate degree. I'm qualified. And I, I did a social psychology one, I think, in my undergrad, and we had to write a piece on staring at the sun or something like that. What that made oh, us did you feel? have to do like a dream diary and things like that? No, not a dream diary, just just the sun thing, which was, which was good enough um, and weird enough in its own right. <laughs> Don't you go blind if you stare at the sun? Yep. Yep. And that's, you know, spoilers out, I'm blind. Um, no, I'm not blind. <laughs> I shouldn't joke about that serious condition, but yeah. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but we will try and obviously tie everything back to video games. And I'll start with a bit of a serious one. But uh, in Melbourne and a lot of Australia at the moment, we're obviously in lockdown. It can be a stressful time for people. You know, and life in general can just be quite stressful, particularly as an adult. I, I definitely feel like as an adult, I felt more stress uh, and anxiety uh, than I ever have as a child, uh, or at least the younger I was, the less I felt. Um, so I, had, you know, good, I was a very fortunate childhood, I suppose. And so I find myself, particularly this year, I've been reverting back into, if not specifically old games, even though I have picked up quite a few older games from my childhood, thanks to re-releases like Super Mario 64 and stuff, but definitely um, really dipping my hand in the franchises that I, I grew up with. Again, you know, Pokemon, Mario, Zelda being the, the big ones, uh, and not really exploring much new stuff outside of my comfort zone. I definitely find for me that nostalgic element is is like a comfort food. It's like having a, a nice bowl of soup. Uh, it helps sort of de-stress me and put my mental state back into a place that you know, it was happier, I suppose, and just forget about all the other crap going on uh, outside of of the world and, and, you know, that I've got going on in my own life. And I hadn't really realized that that's probably why I am drawn to the same franchises, not only because they obviously have consistent gameplay loops that I've obviously fallen in love with, but um, I probably am drawn to them because they just feel comfy. They feel good. They make me... <laughs> sort of revert back into that, I guess, childhood state for a brief period of time and uh, just forget my worries and just focus in on that. Uh, and I, I get the feeling that's probably a case for a lot of people and why, you know, we're seeing so many people, you know, as collectors, right, we see so many of these sort of uh, nostalgic games, uh, toys, whatever, skyrocketing in price for a number of reasons, but one of it is people you know, are probably chasing that, that childhood sort of dream that they once had yep. to make themselves feel better in a world that is not so great right now. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts or, or feelings about, about that of your own, Brendan. A big part of the appeal is going back to a time that was just so much simpler. I think a lot of those mementos and tokens of your childhood and 
your earlier life are very much evoking a time where you didn't really have many worries or many serious worries if you look back on them. Like, things were generally fine. Like, yes, I, I do recognise it and I do stress, yes, not everyone had an idyllic childhood. I think that should be stressed and a lot of people, there will be people out there that particularly disdain nostalgia or don't find it comforting or might be nostalgic about different things and nostalgia might have more of a negative influence and negative impact than a positive one. But I think for me personally, I think there is that element of comfort. As you mentioned, comfort is so important in that feeling of nostalgia that you just want to go back and revisit things that you enjoyed in the past and revisit things that are a known quality in that you know you're going to enjoy it. It's like watching your favourite movie. You you know what to expect from a movie like Lord of the Rings, like Die Hard, because you've watched it before. You you know why you enjoy it. It's a known quantity to yourself. You know which parts make you evoke certain feelings. You know which parts are worth watching. And if you watch it with a friend who hasn't watched it before, you'll tell them, oh, pay attention to this part or, oh, this is a great moment. Like, hit, watch out. Like, it's about to happen. It's like this is iconic. Whereas if you watch a movie you read a book that you have no history with, that you've never experienced before, that you know nothing about. Yes, there's a likelihood that you're really going to enjoy it. Yes, there's the likelihood that it might be one of your new favourites, that you might be nostalgic about this thing going forward five, ten years later. But you don't know that. You, it's, it's an unknown. So there is the possibility, and I think you know it subconsciously, that you might read this and you might not enjoy it. You might think that, oh, I wasted time doing this or, oh, it didn't really fulfil me. Like, yes, you might take a view of, oh, I'm glad I read it even though I didn't enjoy it. I'm going to move on to a new thing or now I'm going to go back and reread a classic or reread something or re-experience something that I actually do enjoy. But I think it's a certainty that people like to fall back upon. I think it's a it does act as a emotional crutch for some people that you can go back to something you know you will enjoy you can go back to something that brings you enjoyment and fulfillment and i've definitely experienced that in in gaming in books in movies there's particular games i'll fall back on like age of empires like rise of nations like early 64 games there's a reason i'll go back and try to purchase more 64 games and game boy advance games and games that are by all rights, technologically antiquated because it's a style of game that I remember. It's a style of game I enjoy. So that factor of it being a known quality, I think, is definitely one of the draw cards and one of the key elements in nostalgia that internally you think you know what you're going to get if you go back. Yeah, I think that's really important um, because I'm going to think how to bring this up in a way that isn't too... uh, We don't go on much of a tangent, but I mean... Uh, that point, as you said, about knowing what to expect, even if it's a brand new game in a series, you know, at least having a level of understanding of what to expect, I think is a massive part of it. Because, you know, we're seeing at the time of recording a pretty interesting controversy with a, with an indie game, which uh, I think people were expecting a very, well, certain people were expecting a very mm. comfort sort of field game, maybe is how I'd say. Uh, however, it has some some maybe more challenging themes in it. And despite con- there being a, a content warning about some of those challenging themes, I think uh, people were still caught off guard and they've reacted very, 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 very uh, negatively against it. And I think that's a really important point where people sometimes just don't want to be caught by surprise 
even though we should have certain games that do catch us by surprise and those should exist and it's good to have things that challenge us emotionally or just gameplay wise whatever it might be you know dark souls massive one that people love causes a lot of stress and it isn't an easy game uh, and that's fine but you know that knowing what you're getting into i think is a massive part of why games that are nostalgic or evoke a similar sense to what you're chasing are are so sought after but sometimes that uh that you know when chasing the chasing that nostalgia you go back to something you remember loving or as a kid or just earlier in your life doesn't have to be as a kid and then you pick it up you play it and you're like oh no that's not what i remember it being or it's just not as good (laughs) or or, you know as you thought it was do do you have any you know examples of of a time you've you've gone back to something from an earlier part of your life and been like i actually this is this is pretty bad or or at least not what i thought it was i think this is a hard one for me personally because i think there has definitely been games i've gone back to from my childhood or games i've experienced in the past that i go back to and i play and i probably think that oh I don't find it as impactful as I did when I was younger. I don't find it as enjoyable as I did when I was younger, but I can generally find something enjoyable or something good out of it. So I still enjoy it in many ways. So for me, one of the examples would be Star Fox Adventures. It was a game I really enjoyed on the GameCube growing up. It wasn't really what I expected because I absolutely adored Lilat Wars. It's still to this day, one of my favorite games of all time. And, Star Fox Adventures is clearly not Lilac Wars, aside from some shoehorning of R-Wing stages and the like. But nonetheless, I really enjoyed the game. Never finished it, but really enjoyed it. Had some good memories about it. And I went back about probably only about five, six years ago, maybe a bit more recent than that. But yeah, roughly five years ago, I went back and I played it and I finished it. And like, there's parts of it I enjoyed, but part of it was I finished it because... I just wanted to be able to say I finally completed that game from my childhood. I probably it probably wasn't as impactful as it was back then. I did probably didn't enjoy it as much as I did back then, even though I ultimately dropped it and never finished it back in the day. I, there's probably many games I didn't really finish when I was younger, but there was just that feeling that with all my gaming knowledge and experience at the point when I went back and played it, that oh, it's really it's not as good as I thought it was. Like. Yes, there's things that it does, but it's reiterative. It's it's reiterative of other games. It it falls apart in the second act. It was clearly rushed in development, in a development point of view. There's no final boss fight. It has a lot of negatives, and I think one of the dangers of going back to a game that you played as a child is that when you're younger, you don't really think. Well, you don't have the knowledge to recognize a lot of the negatives, and even when you do, I think the perspective is very different in that because you have such a limited knowledge of games, limited experience of different games, that you're generally more able to find the good in things and be interested in a particular style of game or mechanic that when you're older you might think is antiquated or just tiresome. And When you're a child, there's that just sense of joy when you encounter something and I don't want to sound too jaded, but I guess it's rare and rare as you get older because just because you've experienced a lot of it now. You you know how things uh, iterate upon other things. You know that there's generally a, a starting point for a lot of things in gaming, for a lot of cultural cues and pop culture elements. That there's a genesis somewhere and that makes things a, a lot less original than you once thought were. So I, 
I definitely think one of the dangers of nostalgia is that you can look back on something, you can think it's so original, so entertaining, and when you go back with experience, you find out that that really isn't the case anymore. I guess, do, do you have an example, Zach, that springs to mind? Oh, I do. I mean, for me, and it's one of those probably like laughable ones, but it's it's basically 3D Sonic games. <laughs> Almost any <laughs> Gotta of them. go fast. Yeah, gotta go fast. Eat some chili dogs. Uh, but, you know, I, I started my journey with Sonic the Hedgehog as a, as a Nintendo kid on the GameCube with uh, Sonic Adventure DX, Sonic Adventure 2 Battle, and then Sonic Heroes, I guess. So the three main ones, I suppose. And it's not that the games, I mean, they're, they're not great. Um, I'd say Sonic mm-hmm. Heroes is the worst of them, and Sonic Adventure 2 is the best of them. But... I think what I had just forgotten was how bad some of the controls and physics are. Like, Let me guess, you forgot about the Knuckles levels in Adventure 2 Battle. Uh, yeah, those were a bit frustrating, but it's more like the shit where, like, you need to grind on a rail and, like, you know, you got to do this sort of auto jump or something, and then just for whatever reason, like, one out of four times, Sonic will just fly off the stage for no reasons that you can tell all these seemingly, like, on-rail sections, you accidentally, like, have the control stick one degree in the wrong direction and you just don't make a jump that you would normally make. Or uh, I remember in Sonic Adventure, like, the openings uh, level with the whale that chases you and it's just, like, sometimes it's, like, you just get stuck behind stuff and the whale eats him and it's just, like, there's no reason why. It's very frustrating and um, I think I've... When I played them again, or if I played them again, or watched YouTube videos, whatever it might be, I think I, I unlocked this memory, and it wasn't that at those experiences I didn't feel them as a kid. I actually now remember like being equally as frustrated. It's just that over the years, I've for, sort of forgotten the frustrating elements and just kind of remembered the, the, the highs, of, I suppose, of the games, and that's what sort of formed my nostalgia view in them. And it's probably why half of what I remember of Sonic Adventure 2 is the Chow Garden, because that's the best bit of that game and is and remains unbroken <laughs> in my mind um, to this day. Please make a Chow Garden game without any other Sonic stuff. That'd be great. Just want to raise some slaves to race against other slaves. One Pretty much. That's what what it is. Um, but they love it. The little, little, I don't know what they are, cherub type things, I guess. Um, yeah, and I think that's that's a big part of this kind of like, why things sometimes seem so good in our mind is is that we forget the bad stuff. Our minds must be very good at remembering good stuff, or at least trying to. Uh, you know, another similar ones like Mario Sunshine, right? Like I had such high regard for Sunshine, and I almost, you know, there was a period of time where I'd argue it would be better than Galaxy, or you know, these these much highly <laughs> higher regarded Mario games. Um, and it wasn't until I replayed it last year that I'm like, oh yeah, there's just a lot of bs in that game like some of the red coin levels uh like the pachinko one and the and the uh sandbird are just they're just not great designed mm-hmm. and just frustrating and not the fun kind of frustrating so yeah i think that's a bit of a part of it is just that no not only as you said as a kid you don't know better so certain things that you now see as bad or things you saw as original actually aren't that original or clever but also just we've, you know, our minds have suppressed some of the negative elements of stuff we experienced in favour of the positive ones. And until we go back, we don't 
didn't really realize that we've we've done that subconsciously, I suppose. Oh, and I think there's cases where, in many regards, technology has just advanced as well. You can't disregard that. It's like, I still like it to this day, but it's like going back to GoldenEye on the 64 and playing the, the single-player campaign. It's like, yes, it's innovative. Yes, there's elements of it that are great, but ultimately, frame rate's awful and the graphics aren't fantastic. It's all muddy colours and a lot of grey and browns and the like, and like... I still enjoy it, but if I hadn't had the previous experience with it, if I didn't have the memories of playing it growing up, I probably wouldn't have those same opinions anymore. I'd probably, if I went in there with fresh eyes, I'd probably be like, well, this is a bit odd. I don't quite understand why it was so iconic, why it was so groundbreaking as it was in the past. So there's that element as well in that sometimes time just leaves behind these games. And yes, they are monumental. Yes, a lot of people look back on them fondly, but it is better to sometimes leave them in the past and constantly go back unless unless you still find enjoyment from them. And I think there's a lot of people that would, especially people that wouldn't particularly consider themselves gamers anymore, people that grew up with a 64 and never really progressed past that. They probably have a better time going back and enjoying those games because they don't know it. Well, not that they don't know any better. I don't want to be flippant like that, but... I guess that's what they consider gaming. They don't have mm. experience with modern 4K, 1080p gaming, that like 60 frames per second being the standard. Like gaming for them is that low polygon count, sluggish 64 life. And I still find it appealing, so I definitely get where they're coming from. But I think for other people, I do understand why they can think, oh, yeah, I remember going to friends' places and playing this game and enjoyed it, but there's no way I'm going to spend time doing that now because it's just not a good game, which is a bit of a hot take, but each their own. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's why stuff like um, barcades and stuff where they, they do have, like, 64 set up rather mm-hmm. than Switches and PS5s and Xbox Series Xs is, is, a, is the thing, right? Because, yeah, it's really drawing on that, like, oh, I haven't played a 64 in ages. And, yeah, let's have a few drinks and play some, some Super Smash Brothers and uh, and GoldenEye, as you said. But if you said, hey, do you want to play Smash Brothers Ultimate? They'd be like, ah, nah, man, that's just too weird and complicated for me. Who are all these characters? Yeah. Uh, not like I bet they knew who Ness was back then. Neither did we. For that reason, none of us did in Australia because he didn't come out here. But anyway... But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, for some people, that is what gaming is to them. And whether it's 64, you know, Sega Genesis, um, or just early PC, it, it, you know, whatever it is, is their jam. And every now and then, they just want to go back to it the same as, you know, maybe they play with a Lego set or a, or something from their childhood. Oh, speaking of NES, Zach, I just thought of an interesting point. What about, nostal- be- what about being nostalgic for something you've never experienced? What about all the people that clamoured for Earthbound and Mother 3 and the like, that, yes, there are some that played fan translations or played ROMs of Earthbound on, like, dodgy SNES emulators in the early 2000s, but for the bulk of the people, they never experienced these games, but there's a significant portion of people that want to play them for various reasons, and I think this, the, there is elements of nostalgia there, not necessarily nostalgia of, I played Earthbound in the 90s and I want to play it again, but nostalgia for a particular type of game, nostalgia for a particular aesthetic of, oh, I really liked Super Nintendo RPGs or 
Super Smash Brothers, which is we have talked about it on previous episodes, but that is a nostalgia machine in many ways. All the different characters from different eras of Nintendo and it pushed a lot of franchises like Fire Emblem. But like I think that's another element of nostalgia can be harnessed to inform your decisions, to make you long for something that you have no experience with directly. I think that's a really, really good point because uh, I think it's a mixture of how well companies do to, I guess, let's just be honest, market or position their their brands and characters, but also how society runs with them. Um, you know, a good two examples I think of, again, growing up as a, as a Nintendo kid, there's a few, you know, PlayStation synonymous brands from back then, which have jumped ship or moved multi-platform, but I digress, specifically Final Fantasy and Metal Gear Solid that I grew very attached to in some weird way to the point where it was kind of like, you know, same way with say Earthbound, right? Like when I was playing Earthbound, it was kind of like, oh, I recognize all this stuff from from Smash Brothers, you know, Ness and these stages like, um, you know, on it and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, this was more from just seeing them in video game magazines uh, and in some ways, particularly with Final Fantasy, just flash animations on, on Newgrounds and that kind of stuff. And then getting, you know, experience like, you know, Final Fantasy VII uh, was, it was like not nostalgic in the same way of playing a game I played as a kid, but nostalgic in like kind of discovering the alternate timeline of if had I been a, a PlayStation 1 kid instead of a Nintendo 64 kid, as well as, I guess, expanding on these like, what, again, for me, were mostly Flash animations. I again understand those worlds a bit better and those jokes that I laughed at as a kid, but now I'm like, oh, now I actually get why that's funny because <laughs> I played the game they're referencing. I think that definitely has a massive element. I don't know. Is that, did you have any sort of similar experience with certain franchises that you didn't actually play, but they're nostalgic to you for other reasons? Yeah, there were, there were definitely games that are, and I think one that always comes back to memory would be crazy taxi on the dreamcast and oh, yeah. in that i guess the answer's cheating a bit because i did play it but it was very much i played it at a demo kiosk in a harvey norman growing up when for whatever reason at one point in time my parents were often in harvey norman and they'd take my brother and i and i think it happened quite a few times that in that sort of late 90s early 2000s they had when the dreamcast was still a thing they had a kiosk there and it was purely just crazy taxi there and my brother and I would just take turns playing that game. And that has a lot of nostalgia for me, a lot of memories, the soundtrack, the music around it, just the the arcade style of it. I it, I found it really compelling and really interesting and I'm nostalgic about that game, even though I haven't played it since. I haven't played it for over two decades at this point. I still have fun memories about it. And I think in many ways it helped contribute to the fact that I, I find a lot of arcade-style games really enjoyable. I like the pick-up-and-play element without the need to put coins into an arcade machine and lose money that way. That a home console version of arcade game, you can have as many goes as possible. You can just learn and hone your skills at a particular game, at a particular arcade experience, and I, I find that really enjoyable. I find that really compelling, and I think a large part of that I can contribute to just what Crazy Taxi offered, even though I never really played it. And I think to your point, Smash Brothers really impacted my interest in Fire Emblem in that, yes, I played the first Fire Emblem game because it was recommended to me by the guy who owned the, or not his mother owned the local independent video game shop in the country town I grew up in. 
that he, he basically said, oh, yeah, you should play Fire Emblem, just came out of the Game Boy Advance, really good game, pick it up. But one of the reasons why that I found that compelling as well was, well, I was familiar with Fire Emblem. I, I knew the characters, even though Marth and Roy are not in that game. I, I still had that feeling of, oh, yeah, I kind of know what to expect from that game, which, to be honest, I had no idea what to expect from that game. I've never encountered a strategy RPG in my <laughs> life before playing Fire Emblem. Played Pokemon, of course, yes, so I knew what a turn-based RPG was in theory. Played Paper Mario as a similar experience when i first played it i quickly got the hang of it because i was like oh yeah like there's even as a kid you can recognize similarities and you can think oh yeah it's not the same but like i can figure it out i can get the hang of it pretty quickly but the fact is i've never played that top style of game before but because of final because i recognized particular the art style the characters i could think that oh yeah i know what to expect i, I like roy and marth those those are in one of my favorite games i'm going to enjoy another game they're affiliated with, even though they aren't affiliated with it. So it's more of a marketing gambit than nostalgia, but I think there's a very intrinsic and integral link between the two. Well, I think we just like seeing stuff we're familiar with. I mean, I know we, I don't know, I personally get a, a kick out of seeing references to my favourite games or whatever in, in TV or, or other media. Um, you know, obviously, recently in the real world, we had the Olympics and bunch of video game music <laughs> appeared in the opening ceremony and that was you know super cool to be like ah oh, dragon quest music even yeah. uh or monster hunter music you know that final fantasy etc and you know twin it off and i think in some ways the experience you're describing and i've certainly felt myself with fire emblem or earthbound or other other franchises i've discovered through say smash brothers it's, it's almost like the reverse it's like seeing my my Smash Bros. character in another in another medium um, just happens to be where they're actually from, uh, as opposed to being from Smash Brothers, I suppose. But we just do like stuff that we're familiar with, I guess, is the, the long and the short of it. We don't like originality. We don't like new things. Just give us the same cold, hard, the slop. Yeah, the slop. Give us the slop. I want more slop. Feed me more oats, brother, please. <laughs> but yeah, speaking of liking and not liking stuff, so you and I play with some friends uh, a game called fantasy critic which um is effectively where it's like a football league where we're sort of trying to guess uh what games are gonna you know review well or not well and that, that you know the higher reviewing games score a certain amount of points if they're in our team but that's an interesting game to play because you know it, we think a lot about how will reviewers receive games uh not necessarily how the fans will but reviewers specifically because there's there's the score that matters to to that game uh and it certainly had me thinking a lot more about how a particular game's going to get received for uh, in a way that i hadn't previously and nostalgia is definitely a big part of it because you'll notice in our league and many leagues in this in this game people jump on <laughs> franchises uh particularly well-beloved franchises because mm-hmm. they feel like safe bets and i guess what i want to ask you is uh and you know, as someone who's is been a reviewer, and I'm sure if opportunities arise, we'll review again for certain websites. Do you think, consciously or subconsciously, it doesn't really matter, that nostalgia does you know cause some some bump ups on on certain franchises or certain games when they come out, like is uh, versus a, say a brand new IP that that doesn't have that nostalgia element uh, at play? Oh, a hundred percent. Well, it's intrinsically linked with expectation and hype. It's no different to 
if you hype yourself up about the new and great IPs and Sony, for example, like, oh, Ghost of Tsushima looks like the greatest thing ever or Horizon Zero Dawn, like, what a spectacular game. I'm, I'm so keen to play it. And Well, you saw the same thing happen with Cyberpunk. That wasn't particularly a recognisable IP. It was sort of a fringe pen and paper IP that got turned into a video game. But the hype machine around that was quite large. And you saw that from a lot of the early reviewers of that game reviewed it pretty well. Like, you know quite well that I picked that for Fantasy Critic last year and I was just tailing you by a little bit and it looked like I was going to catch up to you. Cyberpunk came out. It was sort of rating in sort of the mid to high 80s. I was very close to your score. It looked like I was going to have this epic comfort behind victory in December. And then a lot lot of the later reviews came through from other review outlets, maybe ones that, that the reviewers took more time to get the reviews out. They didn't have deadlines to hit and that sort of thing. And their opinions of the game changed or they morphed or... The more they played, the more they were disappointed, and the the aggregate score of that game absolutely crashed. It went down to sort of, I think if you look today, it's probably in the mid-70s, I think, probably 77, I think, or around that mark. But anyway, I think that that's an example of, I, get, I think everyone who reviews games has inherent biases. We talked about that in our episode when we talked about reviewing and all the critic culture around gaming, and I think nostalgia plays an element in that in that it builds up your expectation what for example if i review a fire emblem game i'm i can't park my experience with the franchise i can't distance myself from the experiences i've had with it in the past so it's no different to it's no different to playing the latest fire emblem game and in my review i'll directly compare it to the previous one and say oh it's a good game but it's not as good as the last one so there's no way i can rank it higher than the last one so this is the mark i'm going to give it if i if if it's a website or if it's an outlet that uses scores or if it's not i can in my written review criticize a game based on oh it's missing this it's missing that and there is a chance that that might be purely arbitrary like the things that it is missing might be a good thing like it might just be doing something different it might be trying to put a spin on the franchise it might just be trying to do something new but because I have my biases, because I have expectations around what I expect from a particular game, I can criticise for doing that. It's no different to your nuts and bolts example at the very start of the game. I can consider, oh, nuts and bolts is a good sort of Lego building vehicle simulator or whatever it actually tried to be who actually knows what nuts and bolts is going for. (laughs) But I could say, oh, it's really good at that, but it's not a Banjo-Kazooie game, so I'm giving it 5 out of 10. So... I think you're right in that there can be artificial inflation by reviewers from um, due to nostalgia, due to, oh, this is my favourite franchise. I love Legend of Zelda, so it can't be any lower than a 7. So, oh, this one's pretty good. I'm going to give it 9.5. And then if I'm a Zelda fanboy, I'm going to go send hate tweets at anyone that gives it less than an 8 because (laughs) clearly they don't understand video games and they are evil trolls from the dark side of the internet and they must be stopped. So there's the element of a reviewer that you have an unconscious bias that you'll instantly put it at a certain scale and consider it in that light, or there's the other side of you think you you put sort of unrealistic expectations behind something and, well, you're more critical than you probably should be in your review. Yeah, I think you've really 
you've really unpacked it quite well there. I mean, I, I often think about, well, not often, but uh, the last couple of years, the one I'm game that sort of I think a lot about is, is Pokemon Sword and Shield because that's it's really hard because I, I enjoyed that game uh, and obviously a lot of reviewers did too because it scored fairly well I think in line with most but Pokemon games. it didn't games. have the national decks. But didn't have the national decks and it, and it has issues other than that as well. I just don't know like I don't know if I am just enjoying it because it's Pokemon or <laughs> is it actually not as bad as the, the decks that people want me to believe it is and uh, I feel like a lot of the people that reviewed it are people like me who just kind of like, they like Pokemon, but they're not like, how do I put it? They're not overly obsessed with Pokemon to the point, like, I mean, I, mean, I say that I'm pretty bloody obsessed, but they're not like freaking out that every Pokemon isn't in there. They're able just to play through a, a main series game and have a really, you know, enjoyable time. And that sort of reflects in their review scores of like, you know, high sevens, low eights kind of thing versus some of the people who are very upset about Dexit and just other issues like the linearity, graphics, animations, etc. I'm not trying to pretend there aren't issues. If they were reviewing it, probably would give it like a five or a six. And it's really hard. Like, I just, I can't even tell myself whether I'm biased or not. I just can't separate it. And I think that's probably true of most people. Like, they probably can't, even to the best of their ability, accurately course correct, I guess, a review score or their opinion of a game to reflect that unconscious bias. Because, you know, to your point, I think you sort of made, but maybe I misinterpreted, but, like, the other way you can go is you can be too critical Mm -hmm. because you're trying to overcompensate for your own perceived biases that you've kind of recognized, which is why, you know, we've sort of said this before, but it's so important to try and understand who your reviewer is and learn as much about them as possible. Uh, You know, like, there's a very... um, Someone said on Discord, we're both in the other day, uh, they're looking for some game, asking an opinion on a game, I can't remember what it was, it was something Nintendo related, but I can't remember which which game, I think it was Pokemon Snap actually, uh, and I said, well, you know, I gave my opinion and it was very good, and then other people gave similarly good reviews, and the person's like, oh thanks, like, as much as I listen to Zach's opinion, I know that, that with Pokemon stuff, it can be inflated by, <laughs> by a bit, and the, you, you know, that's where it's helpful to know the person and their their what they are nostalgic mm-hmm. for, um, but unfortunately there are so many people writing, particularly for these big outlets. Like people get chopped and changed all the time. Um, it's hard to always familiarize yourself with each individual reviewer, but certainly if you could, that's the best way to to understand it. Because yeah, you're, I, I just think it will never get to a point where nostalgia and other hype factors in general don't either artificially inflate or alternatively um, create an overly large sense of disappointment for from the other end of the spectrum that it causes review scores to skew mm. one way too far. <laughs> exactly. And uh, in Blowing Cartridges tradition, it wouldn't be an episode of Blowing Cartridges if I didn't purposely start to strain to other cartridges. So to change the topic slightly, to go completely off topic, I think it's, it's very much why, when it comes to reviews, that I my advice, if anyone actually asks me, which I don't think they actually ever would, but if you're in a situation where you're not sure about a particular game that you're thinking, oh, maybe I'll like this game, maybe I won't, you really do need to... That's why I, I do like things like Metacritic or OpenCritic in that I'm not a huge fan of oh, you combine all the scores together and you get like a one single score and that's the end-all end of how good the game is, but... 
it's a good way of just going to see a collection of reviews from a variety of outlets across the internet and you can if you want to you, you can read a really negative one a really positive one one in the middle and you can form your own opinions if they are if they've written to any decent degree you can generally get a sense of what the game's about why a particular reviewer liked it why a particular reviewer disliked it and if particular points resonate with you for example if someone talks about oh yeah it's repetitive but you actually like repetitive games or if someone talks about there's too much dialogue that you enjoy dialogue that you might say oh i understand why where the positive review is coming from because i'm like that guy i like really wordy games so i'm going to enjoy this one i'm going to buy it and play it so i think that's probably the best way to overcome the nostalgia any sort of nostalgia biases or biases in general in reviews is to just try to take a spread try to inform yourself as much as possible if you're on the fence and or you're limited by resources or time or money and you can only buy one game for a given month but you, you need to be equipped with as much information as you can either that or you hire a private investigator to like store or dig through trash cans yes yeah dig through trash cans and find out the reviewer that is the most similar to you as a human being and then you just read their reviews that's the other option get them to um, take a personality test are they intj as well oh no they aren't i, I can't listen to them that's it's no good where do they sit on the myers briggs test we need, we need to start insisting that every outlet puts that at, at the top of their, their reviews, the disclosure. What is the Maya Briggs result of their of the reviewer today? It's a, a bit of a hard concept to, to talk about. Not hard to talk about, but like capture because it is so simple, but also so complex nostalgia. But I think it was, a, it was fun to sort of go through it as well as relive some memories. So, you know, thanks, Brendan, for, for joining me on another great episode of, uh, of this show uh, to, to talk about yeah, nostalgia and its place in the video game world. Oh, exactly. Now it's time for me to blow off my NES and play Duck Hunt for the thousandth time because it's the best game ever. Yeah, I've got to do it until before your CRT eventually kicks it the bucket and you're paying 10k just to get a CRT <laughs> that probably cost 300 bucks back in the day. <laughs> oh, you can still find them on the side of the road, so we, well, there's hope yet. So that should be a YouTube series, CRT hunting, just driving around the streets of uh, during hard rubbish collection uh, and see how many CRTs you can find. <laughs> well, I'll take a ute with you or like a white panel van, loaded up with CRTs. Yeah, well, you'll, you'll have to do it. Uh, I'm still stuck in my five kilometers, so I can't do anything. So uh, let me know what uh, treasures you find out there in uh, the, the good old regional areas. <laughs> oh, that's out. That, that's going to be our podcast spin-off series uh, for Patreon exclusives. It's going to be CRT Hunters. Yeah, so, uh, oh, blow, blowing tires, CRT Hunters. <laughs> I don't know why blowing tires, because we're on the road, I guess. I don't know. Figure it out. But yeah, if you want to, you know, discuss some of your favorite gaming memories or how nostalgia affects you, uh, or you're nostalgic for this episode in the future and you want to reach out to us, there's quite a number of ways you can do that. At Pod at your social medias, Twitter primarily, and Facebook as well. We'll get you there. Email blowingcartridge at gmail.com uh, if you like the old electronic mail, which these days feels old school, so maybe you're nostalgic and want to do it that way. Or, of course, if you just want to reach out to one of us uh, and tell us why we're wrong or right, uh, why Sonic Heroes is the best game and there are no issues, then you can reach out to me at Egorino on Twitter, E-G-G-E-R-I-N-O. 
uh, or Brendan, uh, you can you know tell him why you also uh, love to play Age of Empires and maybe ask him for a match to both crave your nostalgic itches at Tamazoid on Twitter. And my DMs are open if you want to send me a copy of Crazy Taxi on the Nintendo GameCube. Yeah, I remember renting that and just thinking it was a Simpsons Road Rage ripoff uh, back in the day. <laughs> so to your point that you made earlier around not knowing what's original and what isn't, <laughs> I now know better. And of course, if you're nostalgic for, let's say, certain shapes, like say a star, you hey. can experience that nostalgia by giving us five stars. You get a look at them and feel that nostalgia yourself. And we get to look at them and, and feel it with you, like a shared experience that we can all be happy about. And in 10 years' time, we'll, we'll look back at that review and be like, oh, man, how good was uh, August, you know, or, or September, whenever this goes up, uh, 2021, when that review was written by by yourself. Uh, it'll be it'll be great. Leave reviews. Review often. Get, get on your partner's phone and leave a review. Get on your parents' phone and leave a review. Get on everyone you know who has an Apple device or Apple account and get them to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the podcast and we're unethical enough that we think that's a good strategy to do. So get everyone to just leave a review, even if they haven't listened to this podcast, because we will appreciate it and we think it is the right thing to do. 100%. But until next time, thank you all for listening and we will... uh be blowing your way in, in hopefully a couple of weeks with another new topic and another new cartridge. Uh, so, so long. Farewell to you, my friends. Goodbye for now until the very end.